The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a board game I developed a while ago. It's called Rites of Cthulhu, and I think you'll like it. It may seem that I have Cthulhu on the brains lately. Well, I guess I always have Cthulhu on the brains to one degree or another. Regarding Rites of Cthulhu, the board game, long before ancient life, as indicated by human evidence, winked into existence, the great old ones walked our land masses, lived in our oceans, and hung in our skies. But most of them eventually left Earth and fell into a death-like sleep. These horrors of the universe render us no more significant than the insects that we crush under our boots as a matter of living. Some humans divide themselves into cults and commit their existences to worship of these great old ones. The rites these cultists practice often bring nothing more than ruin and madness. They can also bring grandeur that surpasses imagination. Deeply seated in H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos, Rites of Cthulhu allows players to become cultists and perform six rites based on stories by H.P. Lovecraft. During each rite, players compete for artifacts such as the Necronomicon, Henry Ackley's Brain, the Jade Hound, and other iconic objects from Lovecraft's tales. The player at the end of the game with the most artifacts wins. My brother, Larry, and I started a board game company many years ago. It's called Quirky Engine Entertainment. Rites of Cthulhu is one of the titles we offer. You can pick up a copy at Amazon.com. And you can get more information about our games by visiting QuirkyEngine.com. For today's story, I offer something dark for sure. The disturbing little yarn called Yet Another Use for the Common Table Fork. Enjoy. Gerald and Gabriella knew each other. Both were frequent patrons at Eddie's place. She was surprised when he drew a gun from beneath his untucked blue dress shirt. Everyone in the bar that night reacted differently to the steel of Gerald's Beretta. Scully Arkham, a player in his own right, smiled, thinking that Gerald must be joking. But the smile and the blood drained from his face when Gerald raised the weapon and aimed it at Scully's chest. But you're a good guy, Scully said. Gabriella thought she saw the edge of Gerald's right eye tick just before he pulled the trigger. The explosion deafened her. The flash branded a star tracer in the center of her vision. Scully collapsed like a bag full of meat, immediately cold and dumb. Two couples, the smartest of those assembled in the bar, cut straight for the exit. Before Gerald could protest, they'd made their way to the street. Gabriella hoped to find the police. I know what you're all thinking. Gerald said, his voice conversational. You're wondering what caused it. What was the final thing that made me snap? All eyes, some already moist with tears, were fixed on Gerald. Gerald smiled, his perfect teeth gleaming. As quickly as the smile had peeled across his face, it slid away and landed in a dour expression. It's okay, you know, Gerald said. I don't have any kids or anything. I can do whatever I want. 
What are you doing, Gerald? Terence Ridley said from the pool table, still holding a cue stick in one hand. Gabriella knew that Terence and Gerald both worked at Charles Arliss's financial as auditors, their days long during the Christmas season, full of numbers and energy drinks. They'd both taken turns asking her out. Nothing had developed between Gabriella and either of them. They were shopping for meat. She was all brains. Not to say that they didn't have their charms. Gabriella liked Terence's GQ cover-worthy jawline. She liked Gerald's Ivy League wit and nice hair. As far as Gabriella knew, Gerald and Terence were friends. They often came together to Eddie's place for drinks and girls. Nice gun, isn't it? Gerald held up his Beretta. I did everything right, you know. The paperwork, the background check. Put the gun down, Terence said. As a psychology major at Utah State, Gabriella had studied the psyche of the so-called insane. She had suspected psychopathic tendencies in Gerald. She knew that psychopaths didn't froth at the mouth and walk the streets bent on killing every sorry soul they came across. She knew that undiagnosed psychopaths functioned in everyday life, all around her. She knew that the common psychopath possessed megalomaniac tendencies and a lack of guilt for actions that could emotionally or physically harm bystanders. She also knew that, according to recent research, four in 100 people were psychopaths. That scared the hell out of her. Terence raised both his hands, his thumb still hooked on the pool cue, and moved around the table. Look, you have a whole room full of innocent people here. How do you know they're innocent? Gerald waved his gun hand in an arc across the collection of hostages. What have any of them done to you? Terence asked, still edging around the pool table. Gerald glided like a wraith across the floor to a blonde girl with a low-cut pink top and tan skin. She tried to jerk away, but the vacuum in his eyes froze her. He put a muscular arm around her and pushed the muzzle of his gun in her temple. How do you know, he said to Terence, that she is innocent? I mean, for all you know, she's a whoring little tart with a purse full of her best client's money. The hurtful words cascaded from Gerald's mouth without a hint of empathy. He seemed only interested in the overall effect of the words, not in their ability to hurt the girl personally. A sob escaped the blonde girl's lips like a whimper. You shut your mouth. I need to concentrate, Gerald said to her. Please let me go, the blonde girl said, swallowing sobs. Not until I get what I want. Let her go, Gerald, Terence said, now around the pool table and moving across the dark carpet. Gerald turned the gun on Terence. I want you to do something for me. What is it? Terence froze. See that table behind you? Gerald pointed the muzzle towards an eight-foot-long banquet table. Why don't you stand on top of it? I want you to have a bird's-eye view of my show. Gabriella began to form a diagnosis. Gerald had indicated that he wouldn't let the girl with the pink top go unless he got what he wanted. She used this as part of her profile. Psychopaths don't function erratically, with no thought for consequence or outcome. They think methodically. For a man to simply draw a gun and start shooting does not indicate that he is a psychopath. A psychopath will, with all his narcissism, usually have a self-serving goal. Terence stepped up on the long banquet table. He felt vulnerable and ineffective, standing so high above Gerald and the other hostages. He raised his hands, keeping his eyes on the man with the gun. Barkeep, why don't you pour me a round of Jack, Gerald said. The bartender, boyish-looking man with an adolescent beard, reached under the bar. Nothing funny, 
Gerald said. The bartender slowed his motion to a crawl, drawing a bottle of Jack Daniels from beneath the bar. He placed a shot glass on the countertop and poured a ribbon of the brown liquid. Your boss, Eddie, he's got a safe in the back, right? That's right, the bartender said. And from what I've heard, he's a rich son of a bitch. Collects gold coins, doesn't he? That's right. Why in hell does he keep them here? Gerald asked, his eyebrows arching. Why in hell does he occasionally take one of them out to show around? Doesn't he know that only scabs come here? I can't say, the bartender said. Gerald spotted tears welling in the adolescent-faced barkeep's eyes. With one arm still around the blonde girl, Gerald picked up the shot of Jack and gulped it down in one bend. Undoubtedly, Eddie keeps his safe locked up tight, right? The bartender nodded. Yeah, smart man. You got a phone, right? The bartender bent down behind the bar. Gerald raised the Beretta and fired. The weapons report jangled a rack of shot glasses. Gerald hadn't shot at anything in particular. He just squeezed off a round to send a message. No fast movements. No games. The bullet exploded an oversized mirror that hung at the end of the bar. Shards of razor glass splintered outwards, peppering the room with an erratic light of winks. A scrawny man, probably just 21, perhaps out for his first night in an actual bar, sat in the path of the maelstrom. The young man covered his eyes with one hand, but couldn't prevent the glass from turning his exposed arms and neck into bloody messes. Someone in the back of the room gasped. Someone else choked out an awful cough. The young man, blood oozing from a score of microcuts, moaned and leaned hard against the table. Amazing, Gerald said to himself. Gabriella continued her diagnosis. Gerald had established a concrete purpose. He was after Eddie's gold. Psychopaths took hostages usually for one of two things, money or rape. She uttered a silent prayer that Gerald wasn't a sex addict. On top of motive, Gerald had shown his lack of empathy. He'd used the girl as a tool and hadn't flinched when the mirror had broken all over the bleeding young man. If Gerald was a psychopath and Gabriella's diagnosis seemed more credible towards that end by the moment, then she and the rest of the hostages must handle the situation delicately. Negotiating with a psychopath was different than negotiating with a non-psychopath. You son of a bitch! Terence said from his tabletop perch. Gerald smiled up at his co-worker. You still back there? He said to the bartender, keeping his eyes on Terence. Yes, the bartender said. It might have gone a little further than I intended, but I want you to know that I am so, so serious. I don't want any quick movements. You'd better come up from under that counter with a phone, not a shotgun or a club, or I will put a bullet through the head of this little bar whore. Gerald pushed the muzzle of his gun into the blonde woman's temple. I swear, I'm just getting the phone. Fine, let's get it up on the bar so you can call your boss. The bartender stood up, holding a telephone handset, his eyes seeming to beg for mercy. What's your name? Gerald asked the bartender. Joey Drizgle. Don't break down on me, Joey. I need you, at least for a little while longer. Joey nodded. Now dial your boss. Joey pushed a quick dial button, put the headset to his ear. A long moment passed. Acid silence flooded the room, assaulting, provoking the nerves of all hostages as they waited for Joey to connect with his boss. To Gabriella, everything seemed to make sense. That is, for a psychopath. 
Gerald was putting on a divisive show. His treatment of the blonde woman, his causing Terence to stand on the table, these were criteria to support her diagnosis. Gabriella had read that hostage negotiators were trained to use a set of factors to quickly determine if a perp had psychopathic tendencies. Factors such as superficial charm, a grandiose sense of self-worth, and pathological lying were ranked using a scale from zero to two, zero being not applicable, one being somewhat applicable, and two being fully applicable. Watching Gerald brandishing his gun intrigued Gabriella's left brain, which consequently caused her right brain to squirm. So far, Gerald was passing the test. Eddie, Joey said, weeping into the phone. This is Joey. We got a situation here. Gerald's mouth curled into a smile that advertised the satisfaction he garnered from his control over so many people. I got Gerald Ingeman here, and he has a gun. Joey paused, listening to what Eddie had to say on the other end of the call. What's he saying? Gerald asked. Joey raised one finger to quiet Gerald. With the flourish of a Spartan, Gerald shoved the blonde girl aside, sending her headlong into a pinball machine. She ricocheted and fell to the floor. The sharp, colorful lights of the machine, a James Bond-themed model, blinked a ghastly illumination on her tear-shimmered face. The Sean Connery version of Bond, wearing a tuxedo, wielding his signature mark, Gerald Walther PP pistol, stood with a woman on each arm. Connery's gorgeous face gleamed with a creasy smile. Gerald glided across the floor and tore the handset from Joey. He put it to his ear and wheeled around, crescenting his weapon across the room, probing for anyone who might be brave enough to oppose him. Though Gerald's features reflected a sort of faux rage, Gabriella recognized a coolness in his eyes that suggested that even his emotional exploitation was calculated. Gerald spoke into the handset. Listen to me, Eddie. I'm going to make it really easy for you. I want the combination to your safe. That better than 20 lives here, all standing at the wrong end of my gun. If I don't walk out of here with a bag full of gold coins, things will get bloody. Everyone held his breath while Gerald listened to the headset, his eyes calculating. No, you're not going to come down here. I don't have the time. Gerald said, raising his voice for effect. You will tell me the combination, or I'm going to kill one of your customers. Gerald listened. I want you to hear this. I think you might understand it better than my words. Gerald leveled his gun at the blonde woman that now stood next to the James Bond pinball machine. He took his mouth away from the receiver for a second to speak to the woman. It's nothing personal, ma'am. He pulled the trigger. The boom of the shot jangled the shot glasses behind the bar again and exacted a fresh set of sobs and gasps from the hostages. The blonde woman didn't fall immediately. A new buttonhole in her forehead barely marred the perfect skin of her face. The hole didn't bleed for an entire five count. During that suspected moment, the woman just stood there, dazed, not knowing exactly what to do next. Should she fall? Should she run? Should she be dying? The buttonhole loosened allowing a runnel of blood to feel its way down the left side of her nose to her chin, where it began to drip. The woman crumpled casually to the floor. Now you're talking, Gerald said into the receiver, arching the gun across the room, panning for anyone with a misguided motivation to contend with him. The blonde woman's slang concluded Gabriella's diagnosis. They were dealing with an honest-to-goodness psychopath. As such, Gabriella felt that Gerald's behavior could be, to some degree, predictable. If they could somehow appeal to his ego, 
feed the monster, so to speak. Some of the hostages might escape with their lives. Gerald moved around the bar and rummaged for a pencil and a piece of paper. He slapped a receipt book on the counter and wrote three numbers as they were dictated to him through the headset. The combination to Eddie's safe. That's good. Why didn't you give me the combination in the first place? You wouldn't have the blood of two people on your hands. Another uneasy pause while Gerald listened. It isn't my responsibility. How can I be held culpable for your withholding information that could have easily sent the bar whore home alive? Look, I don't have time to listen to you and your regrets. I just want to know, will these numbers open the safe? Another pause. Someone at the back end of the room cleared his throat. A grossly unnatural sound in the cathedral quiet of the bar. Very good. Gerald hung up the receiver and sat it down on the bar. He picked up the receipt book and held it up in the air. I need one more volunteer, someone reliable, who can head to Eddie's office and get what I'm after. I need someone who realizes that I'm serious about hurting people if I don't get what I want. Nobody flinched. A weeping woman in the back of the room broke the crushed stillness with her sobs. A floorboard creaked as someone shifted his weight from one foot to the other. Look, Gerald, Terrence said, still standing on the table, his hands up. What you have here is a situation you can't win. You have a bunch of hostages, two of which you've already murdered. Correction, they murdered themselves. A natural result for not following my explicit and simple instructions. You have a warped way of looking at the world, Terence said. Gabriella winced. He's a psychopath, she shouted in her mind. You must appeal to his ego. He lacks the ability to feel remorse. The phone rang. His shriek boosted the room's tension. You know who that is, don't you? Terence said. It's the cops. Undoubtedly, they have the place surrounded. You see that big window over there? Terence thumbed over his shoulder toward a bay window that overlooked the street. You can bet the SWAT team is pulling up. Hell, they probably have shooters on the roof across the street. They probably have at least four high-powered scopes on your heart and brains right now. The phone rang again. Enough, Gabriella thought. You're going to drive him to do more murder. Why don't you pick it up, Terrence said. Talking to the cops is the only way you're going to get out of this. Where's that volunteer? Gerald raised his voice, trying to talk over Terrence. Face it, Gerald, you're losing. If you don't pick up that phone and make some kind of a deal, snipers are going to spray your brains all over the wall just behind you. No, Gabriella thought. Stop it. But she couldn't say the words out loud. She could only stand there with her hands up. She wasn't a hostage negotiator. She only knew a little about antisocial behavior from a few college courses. She didn't want to die. Ring, ring, shut up, Gerald said. Terrence ignored him. It's a losing battle for a loser. Think about it. You're just another statistic. Just another story in the news. A picture of you in the paper, all dead and bloody, will be your only legacy if you don't pick up that phone and talk to the cops. Ring. Maybe that's what you want. Your 15 minutes of fame, Terrence said. But that's all you're going to get. The cops are going to paint the wall behind you red. The news will cover your story and you'll be dead and forgotten. Just like every other whack job who's lost his mind and taken his guns to town. No, Gabriella thought. You have it all wrong, Terrence. You're going to make him snap. Ring, ring. Now why don't you put down the gun, Terrence said. Turn yourself in and let these people go. Gerald seemed to consider Terrence's proposal, but his eyes drifted down and to the right 
rather than up and to the left. A sign, thought Gabriella, that he was feigning thoughtful consideration rather than actually contemplating Terence's offer. Gerald even pursed his lips and scratched his head to reinforce the effect. Ring! I think your advice could be reasonable, Gerald said, his eyes indefatigably locked on Terence's as he spoke. For someone with less faculty to think rationally than me, he aimed the Beretta at Terence and smiled. There's one thing you should consider before you open your mouth in a situation like this. Terence visually recoiled, his face losing its color, his pupils dilating. What's that? To manipulate a man, you must first have superior intelligence to his. Gerald clenched tighter on the gun. Ring, ring. Gabriella noticed the heat in the room. She'd broken into a sweat. A long runnel of perspiration broke free from her right armpit and traced down the side of her slender body. She glanced at a couple standing next to her. Both of their foreheads were beaded with sweat, partly caused by heat, partly by anxiety. She looked at Gerald's youthful, tanned face, good-looking in another situation. Gerald didn't perspire. His face, slack, had a chilling dryness to it. I think it's dangerously clear, Terence, that my intelligence far surpasses yours, and so I am obliged to decline the proposal you put on the table. Furthermore, you've expired your usefulness to me as a living hostage. Ring, ring. Terence swallowed hard. No, Gabriella whispered to herself. But I think you're useful otherwise. Gerald turned the gun on a woman sitting in a corner booth, her elbows planted on the tabletop, her head down, her fists intertwined in her hair and both her temples. You there, the pretty little wildflower in the corner. The girl looked up, her cheeks slickened with tears, reflecting the pallid light of the overhead neon sign like two shallow pools. I want you to answer this ringing phone before I shoot it just to shut it up. The girl sniffed and stood. Uttering a quiet prayer to herself, she crossed the room to the bar and picked up the handset. She put it to her ear. Hello? Gerald kept the gun trained on Terrence. Yes, he's here. There are about twenty of us, the girl said, her voice not much more than a sob. No, we are not okay. That's all, Gerald said. The girl closed her mouth and nodded once, her eyes locked on Gerald's beautiful blues. I want you to tell the cops exactly what I say, word for word. Do you get it? The girl nodded, pushing a strand of overhanging hair away from her eyes. I have unfinished business. He says he has unfinished business. I can't afford the police to meddle in what I'm trying to do. He can't afford to have the police meddle in what he's trying to do. I need a two-hour window to finish my business. He says he needs a two-hour window to finish his business, and I can't be held responsible for certain actions that I must take in order to finish my business. And he can't be held responsible for actions that he must take to finish his business. Actions such as this. Actions such as this, the girl said, her voice breaking into an open sob. Now hold up the phone. Gerald said. She turned the handset outward to capture the room noise. In one fluid motion, Gerald wheeled around like a hydraulic machine and leveled his gun at Terence, who stood on the table, tears streaming down his cheeks, hands up, eyebrows arched, and fired. 
The rack of shot glasses jangled again. Hostages covered their eyes and looked away. Fresh sobs erupted. The bullet struck Terence in the left side of his chest and carved straight into his heart. Terence flew backward off from his feet. His body suspended, instantly limp, instantly shocked. His weight, a full 205 pounds, came down on the long table. Loose dead mass, without motivation or cognition. The sound of his body slamming against the wood of the table rivaled the boom of the gunshot. Two of the table's legs gave way, causing it to collapse into a slanted ramp. Terence's body slid backward, his head turned rakishly on a limp neck as his mass settled to the floor. His eyes, stupid and gaping, one turned slightly inward, lost their light. The story behind them finished. The girl with the phone bawled openly and put the receiver back to her ear. He shot him! He shot him! Gabriella began to hyperventilate, her lungs taking on their own volition. Air in, air out, air in, air out. She looked in Gerald's eyes and saw no remorse, only a calculated expression, unhampered by culpability or hate. She had properly diagnosed him an antisocial psychopath, criminally insane. But how could she deal with his condition and save lives at the same time? An idea came to her, suddenly, as if an unseen hand had plugged the notion straight in front of her mind's eye. She was a burgeoning psychologist, and she knew how she could treat Gerald's psychological disorder. She reached down, picked up a fork from the table next to her. The fork lay on a plate of unfinished steak and potatoes, meat caught between two of its tines. She kicked off her low heels. The acid-bleached concrete cooled the pads of her bare feet. Gabriella took two deep breaths, then ran straight at the man with the gun. She planted one foot on the chest of Terence's fallen body and mounted the table, now turned into a ramp. In three steps, she gained the full length of the platform and leapt, taking air like a dark angel, dressed in a black skirt and a blue blouse. Gerald wheeled around and spotted her as she flew towards him. He took aim at her slender form and pulled the trigger. The first shot flew wide, whining past Gabriella's left hip. The second shot fizzled through the air near her left ear. The third shot funked into her shoulder, tearing muscle and breaking bone. Gabriella winced but kept her slick grip on the table fork. She moved it forward, maneuvering it to land in the most vulnerable spot possible. When her weight came down, the fork drove first, piercing just beyond below Gerald's right eyebrow. Its tines twisted his eyeball to goo. Gabriella remembered studying Gottlieb Burkhard, a renowned psychologist and researcher from the late 19th century. Burkhard had experimented by removing pieces of the frontal lobes from six patients in his psychiatric hospital in Switzerland. One patient had died after the operation. Another was found dead in a river ten days later. The remainder of his patients exhibited altered behavior. Burkhardt claimed a 50% success rate and suggested that restless patients could be pacified by scratching away the cerebral cortex. Gabriella drove the fork deeper into Gerald's eye socket, into his frontal lobe, as she lost her grip on the utensil, now completely buried, except for the last two inches of its handle, in Gerald's face. She wondered about Burkhardt's 50% success rate. Gabriella and Gerald collapsed together onto the floor like passionate lovers or diametric enemies. She flopped over her girth and careened into the corner of the bar behind him. Nursing her shoulder, Gabriella righted herself. She sat with her back against the bar, her legs splayed into a Y, Gerald's body lying between them. For a moment, 
She gaped at the antisocial psychopath, his comely face marred by the protruding end of the fork handle. Others in the room, after an uncertain moment, approached her. They gathered around her like disciples. Gabriella looked up into their faces, all reflecting immeasurable gratitude for her act of bravery. She knew, as she looked into the eyes of the woman who had picked up the phone, as she saw a couple holding hands, a woman with mascara daggers stabbing down from her eyes, a busboy with a black apron, white shirt, and a name tag that said, My name is Reggie, that from that moment on, each of their lives would be different, perhaps more thoughtful, perhaps more paranoid, but different. I... I think we're going to be okay, Gabriella said, then winced in pain. With effort, she looked up at her disciples and fashioned her twisted grimace into the imperfect perfection of a smile. This has been Yet Another Use for the Common Table Fork, written and read by Craig Nibo. Yet Another Use for the Common Table Fork was originally published in my anthology, Terrifying Lies, the namesake of this podcast. As an author, I study every dark and horrible thing in the world. It's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. During, <laughs> during a period of research on antisocial behavior, I learned that four in 100 of us humans are psychopaths. This fact terrified me. I got thinking, if four out of every 100 people I know are psychopaths, I might be able to pick them out of the crowd. thought about people I work with, people I play with, everyone I know. I began a form of informal and unwarranted mental list of suspects. People who, based on their behavior, might not have consciences. In the end, I accepted this statistic, four out of every 100, as absolutely feasible, maybe even conservative. I hope you aren't on the list. For today's song, I thought I'd share something Tesla-related. The Kickstarter for Tesla v. Cthulhu recently wrapped up. If you back the project, I'm truly grateful and excited to send you your stuff. If you didn't back it, and still want a copy of the vinyl, LP, CD, T-shirt, or any of the other materials, please don't hesitate to contact me via email. Today's song pits Nikola Tesla against Thomas Edison. This rivalry goes down in history as one of the most vicious and underhanded. Edison invented something called DC power. Tesla invented AC power. The two men vied to make their methods of generating energy the world's standard, in truth, we use both forms of energy today. However, every time you plug something into a wall outlet, you draw from Tesla's AC power. This song comes from Rust Monster's album, Clockman, a steampunk rock opera. I love playing in Rust Monster. Together as a band, we produce much better material than I could ever do on my own. This song features myself and the band's sax player, Rick Neff, singing across from one another playing the parts of Tesla and Edison. Rick is a lifelong friend of mine. I met him in the seventh grade. He was the best man at my wedding. We still compose music together and play lots of gigs. With no further delay, I give you ACDC from Rust Monster's album, Clockman, a steampunk rock opera.
This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. Thank you.